I am Shonda Smith-Baker. I want to welcome you to Conversations with Shonda from my uh, new place, my home, where you are in my living room having a, a coffee table conversation um, with Boulay and I at 11 a.m. So good morning, Boo. Good morning, Shonda. Thank you for having me. I put yeah, on a nice shirt so for you. I was wearing my stained yeah, sweatshirt. And I was like, Shonda uh -huh. deserves better. So I changed. Yeah, whatever better is right now, right? Yeah. And I'm appreciating the pillow um, there next to Yeah, you. it's the baby animal theme that I'm trying to keep going. Okay. See, it helps to calm yeah. us down while we talk about some difficult subjects. Okay, yeah. baby animals, calm us down. And is that a unicorn next to you? This is the Squatty Potty Unicorn. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I love my favorite. it the most. Yeah, it, it actually poops a rainbow. It's a oh. soft serve. <laughs> just, just There's so much I can say about that. I don't even know where you <laughs> order such a thing. Um, but good morning again. This is Boulay from Nonprofit AF, um, a blogger, a writer, a vegan, a leader um, with quite a sense of humor. And um, I want to just jump in because I have, I was like going all over the place trying to figure out where I wanted to land. But I, I think I'm going to start with why I was interested in talking to you um, with this audience. And um, it was really a, a couple of folks on my team at the Minneapolis Foundation that brought an article to me about um, donor centrism and community. Um, centered efforts in philanthropy. And they brought it to me, they asked me to read it, which obviously is, um, you know, something to be learned in the fact that they brought it to me and wanted me to, to read it. Um, and that there was some obviously um, queuing up of, of, of them, what I took and saying that there's some practices that we need to, to look at, there's some things that we ought to examine. And so that's really, you know, as we're wrestling in this time, many of us, um, and I've been on the nonprofit side, as you have, where we're saying, why are funders doing this to us? <laughs> like, do they not see the pressure we're under, the time that we're spending? Why are they asking information that they ought to know? And so could you, um, you know, can we discuss for a minute um, what donor centrism looks like and how, and maybe equip me even with talking about it, because certainly we don't mean um, any disrespect to folks that are giving money, but there is an orientation about how we communicate our why in the work. So can we talk about that article? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I feel like this is something that we have to grasp is that we have been centering the voices of donors and funders and people with wealth. And we tell them because you have money, your opinions mean more than everyone else's opinions and your experience means more including uh, more than including the people that we actually serve. And as a sector, we've been perpetuating this sort of concept without even realizing it. In fundraising, we have all these practices around ensuring that your donor feel like heroes, right? It's like ensure you use the word you 20 times in your appeal letters, make sure that your donors feel like heroes, tell them that they did this, that they, they're the ones responsible for these change. And then there are some insidious messages such as our jobs are only to connect our donors to what they are passionate about. I find that to be destructive because it's been perpetuating this white savior complex because most donors, let's face it, are white. 
And so this white saviorism is out there. And then uh, there's poverty tourism also. So we've been perpetuating this. And I think it really um, continues this cycle of injustice that we are trying to, to break our communities out of. So I kind of liken it, this is probably, I'm going to start with, by saying something controversial, which is that I kind of liken donor centrism, uh, you know, donor centered fundraising to, let's say, husband centric marriages, right? I'm, I'm a husband myself, and I, I would love it if my, my partner, every single time that I do the dishes, my partner will go, would send me a handwritten thank you note saying, Dear Vu, because you did the dishes, our family is stronger because of you. Thank you for all that you do for our family. And I, I would love that. I'm sure that would cause me to feel appreciated. I would do the dishes more often. But is that what we really want in a marriage, right? I should be doing the dishes because that's my responsibility. And I should do it whether I'm thanked or not. Yes, it would be nice to be appreciated because we should be appreciating one another, right? But I think this is what's been in the sector is one group the group that has more money is always going to be the one being appreciated. And the group that is asking for money to do the work are the ones following around trying to make the other party feel appreciated. And I think it is a very dangerous dynamic that we have gone into. Yeah. And there's a, is a thought that um, in that dynamic that we're not centering uh, community um, and what the community needs, or is it that we're not centering the expertise of um, our nonprofit leaders and, and folks that work in this space? Like, why, why is that dangerous? Like, what, what are we missing with that lens? Well, exactly what you said, Shauna, which is we are not focusing on the people who are most affected by systemic injustice and ensuring that they have, uh, that they have the power and the resources to implement these solutions. So what we do is we start equating money with intelligence. Right? And this is why we have all the challenges that we currently have right now, which is like, we believe that billionaires have the answers. You know, we, we elect one as president. We, and we, we believe that they are the ones that, that who will lead us to just, and they're not, they're not going to lead us to a more just society because their very existence is antithetical to what we are trying to accomplish. Right. And the more we center that, the more we get further and further away from the people most affected by injustice as the ones who should be leading in these solutions. Right. Are we sure we elected a billionaire as <laughs> a president? I mean, we haven't seen his tax returns. <laughs> but anyway, never mind. Don't go there. Um, so with the um, so essentially, okay, can we talk about poverty tourism? Like, I don't know if I've heard heard that term before. And so for, for those of us that, I mean, we've heard about the industrial complex and we've heard words related to that, but how would you describe poverty tourism? Yeah, this is, uh, we see this all the time. We see the brochures of poor kids who often are black and brown, you know, in, in other countries. And uh, we, we, we have these images to make people feel bad. Sometimes we have tours of our programs. And actually, I remember one executive, one development director who, was, who told me that she was frustrated because there were all these donors who were coming to talk to these kids who were experiencing all sorts of challenges. And she just wanted them to, to wear casual clothing, right? But the executive director of this organization said, no, you know, that, that, that's not comfortable for them. They're business people. They want to wear their suits. And so we have a bunch of people wearing suits going down to gawk at kids who are just trying to live their lives and, you know, and attend this program. Mm -hmm. Like that's a clear example of like 
of poverty tourism. Like you're going down to tour these communities that are affected by systemic injustice. And in, in a way, you, you start to see people as other people who exist outside of your community. And that has been very pervasive in our sector. Yeah. How do you, do you distinguish between a site visit and a poverty tour? Yeah, I think it really depends on the intent, um, right? I, I, I mean, when the donors are able to go down there with the intent of actually interacting with, with community members, finding out, uh, having conversations with them, then, yeah, I mean, this development director was not saying don't come and visit. She was just saying, come down, but dress casually, sit down with our kids, talk to them, find out what they care about, laugh with them, tell a joke with them. You know, but instead they were just out there with their clipboards, probably gawking at people. And so the how, how we go about doing this, and it's not just the site, the visits, it's also like how we tell people's stories, right? You, you and I both have attended many, many galas where we have people, poor individuals with very tra traumatic stories up on stage telling their stories to a group of mainly white donors and funders and convincing them to, to donate to this organization. That is another form of poverty tourism that we've been perpetuating. Yeah, yeah. Do you see um, uh, in these practices, and, and many of them that you're discussing have made me feel uncomfortable um, in some settings, uh, do you see a way through it? Like, are we so indoctrinated to it that um, it's been, uh, you know, do you think we're gonna be able to pivot as a sector? I think so, but it is going to be challenging because we have internalized many of these different practices and we believe that they are best practices. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm working with this movement called community-centric fundraising, which is, there are 10 principles, but the first one is grounding the work in racial and economic justice. And, you know, and, it, it, and already I'm seeing a lot of people pushing back on it. And their main argument is, well, this has been working Focusing on donors' feelings and centering them has been working to raise money. But I think that is sort of not, not the right uh, sort of angle we should be going with. What works doesn't mean mm -hmm. that it's necessarily the ethical thing to do. Right? I, I think a friend of mine That's said that. That's really well, interesting. Yeah, please. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that uh, a colleague of mine is likening it to like we're all fishing for donors in this pond, right? And if, if we just throw a stick of dynamite into the water and it just shocks the fish and all of them come floating up, well, that works, right? But that killing all the fish in the sea is, or in this pond is not going to be, yes, it works. Is that the right thing to do? Because no, it's going to affect the pond. Mm -hmm. It's going to affect all the fish. Yeah, I guess where I was going to go with that is that oftentimes, um, you know, I mean, you know, what you're talking about assumes that money can get us through the issue. Like, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota is very much known as being a very generous community. There's lots of very um, connected people in our city that give money to organizations, to causes, to leaders, and our disparities have not improved. So it's, it, it means to me that money is not the solution, but it is a, a way of getting to solutions. Um, so how, how do you, um, uh, how should philanthropy think around expanding its narrative around how we can get to the type of impact that we're seeking? Yeah, well, I would love your thoughts on this, Shana, because you've been on both sides, right? 
uh, I think for me, I have not been in philanthropy. I, I probably don't think anyone will ask me to work for a foundation at this <laughs> point. But I would love your perspective on what, what are your thoughts, because you've been a, a nonprofit leader and now also in, in philanthropy as well. In philanthropy, okay, so you got reversed on me. So, <laughs> you know, I guess what I would say is, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Um, you know, I, I do think, and I mean, you, the organization that you ran was really around advancing um, leaders of color, is that right? And really looking at how we support that. And I think there's so much um, talk and understanding, um, specifically from those of us that are people of color, folks that have led work, folks of us that have lived in community, um, those of us that have experienced things, that the solutions are really um, centered uh, in community and with those that have the lived experience. And I think the closer that philanthropy can get to understanding, the more proximate we can get um, to the people, to the issues, to the community, and the more we value and trust their leadership, their voice, their perspective, the assets, um, the better our solution building will be, the better we deploy resources. So I guess that's, that's my two cents. Um, I think the most impactful things that I've been able to do in, in my nonprofit leadership role have been from donors that were flexible and where I could come back and say, you know, what you asked us to do didn't work. <laughs> and so like, can I pivot, you know, cause this is really what I think we need. And um, those solutions were incredible. They advanced my leadership. They advanced folks' leadership that worked on it. And so that, that's what I would, would add to that, to my question that I asked myself. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. I, I completely agree. And I think most people, at least on the surface, would say that they agree, that we need proximity to the people most affected by injustice. We need to uh, let them lead and so on. But I feel like, people saying that and actually implementing this, uh, there's a humongous gap, right? So we can say things like, yeah, we need diversity, but then we have diverse candidates and we don't actually give them the autonomy to make any decisions. So we have a lot of amazing staff who may be diverse in foundations, but at the end of the day, it's still the board trustees who are not very diverse, who are making all these decisions on strategies. So while we say that we, we need to trust communities, we actually don't, we don't. So, and there, there's a huge dissonance in that. And I, I think this is a challenge that we have to get through because let's face it, we have amazing board trustees of foundations, but they are the people who are the furthest removed from lived experience in all the issues that we're trying to address. And we've also kind of internalized this idea Again, that people with money get to determine what we do, what our strategies are. I got into an argument with another program officer because she was like, Vu, you criticize philanthropy a lot. Well, what strategy should we do? You know, how do we, how do we, what strategy should we implement that will, that other people would, could, could follow? And I said, well, who gave you the authority to set any strategies at all? Why do you think that you, a foundation, should set any strategies whatsoever? Why not the people who have been on the ground doing the work who have the lived experience, why don't we get to set the strategies mm -hmm. that foundations just follow? So I think that we have to kind of challenge if we actually believe in equity, diversity, and inclusion. And right now, I'm actually, I feel like a lot of leaders of color are getting very tired of DEI stuff because it hasn't really been leading to the changes that, that we want. And in some ways, it's been, it's been what my friend calls equity offset. It's like carbon offset. You know, you plant a tree so then you can keep polluting. Right, because you feel like you're offsetting, so you're actually neutral. 
well, you attend a DEI training, you attend one undue institutional racism training or whatever, you have a DEI committee. And then that means that you can continue doing just terrible things that you have. We have to start thinking about many of these things that just don't make any sense. And I'm going to say things, and we can definitely disagree on stuff. But for example, I don't believe we should have grant applications yeah. anymore. I don't believe it. Why do we have grant applications, right? Why do we, why do we have this? It's, it's a really weird sort of format. Can you imagine a, a food bank telling, saying, telling to all the families who need food, saying, hey, you know, we know that you are all very hungry, and, but we only have a limited amount of food. So we want you all to write an essay and apply and, and talk about how you are hungry. And then we're going to rate you from 1 to 100 based on your answers about how hungry you and your family are and what your plans are to deploy this food and what your logic models are. And then we're going to give the food to the families who have the best application. Like We don't do that to families who are hungry because it should be our responsibility to find the families that are hungriest and provide them with the resources that they need. And it should be the same for philanthropy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I disagree with you. I think practically I'm like, you know, trying to sort in my head, like, what does it look like if we don't have a grant application? Does it look like me responding to more emails? Does it look like me taking phone calls? I mean, what what does that look like? Because um, I think about the capacity that we have now. And, um, you know, I suppose that it would require more work on our end to go out and investigate. But if we are in philanthropy and our relationships are limited, it feels like that could actually reinforce giving money to those that you are familiar with and not those that you are less familiar with. So how, how would that work if we didn't have a grant application? Well, the grant application in a way is it's to avoid doing that important work because we, we just we kind of shift that, that work, that due diligence work onto the communities are actually trying to solve the issues, right? So we need to kind of have the funders and the people who have the money take that responsibility back. But I, what I would say is that this is a very valid argument. Um, and at the, and so to, get a, to get to address this, I would say that philanthropy needs to focus again on the communities that are most affected by systemic injustice. So imagine over here in the you know, we, we are now talking about like all of the, the reckoning with racism, right? Police are still killing black folks. Um, and it's like state sanctioned murders of black people. Well, that is a huge issue, right? So we, if that is something that we all care about, then funding should be going to the black community to address this issue. Over here, we have missing and, and murdered indigenous women. Right. If that is something that we care about, then we need to have funding going to the native community led by native women to address this issue. So that money should be going there and no one should be able to apply for that except for organizations led by native communities. But instead, what we do is like, oh, there's there's a huge problem with missing and murdering indigenous women or with, you know, injustice against the black community. Well, let's just go ahead and put this all this this call out. Uh, for, for, for applications and maybe we'll give some technical assistance to the, to the indigenous group so they can apply, right? But the reality is they will never be able to apply. There is no level playing field. That is a myth that we have perpetuated. That is that there's, uh, uh, if we can just level the playing field, then organizations can just can apply. Maybe we help them out uh, with their grant applications, but that hasn't been working. If we really want money to go to the native community or the black community or the Latinx community or whatever, then we need to just ensure 
that only those communities can apply for these for these for certain types of grants that ensure that the money the money is going there. Yeah, can we um, talk a bit on what we're faced with here in in Minneapolis? And certainly, there are um, other communities that are going through um, very similar sort of inequities and, and injustices. But we had George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd. And our community is, is hurting and grieving um, in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, you and I have both, again, been in the leadership roles within foundations and, I mean, within nonprofits. And it's, it's an incredibly challenging time of thinking about how you're going to keep payroll going, how are you going to support community, um, you know, and, you know, dealing with our different levels of grief, the layers of grief. Um, and if you're a person of color, if you're a black person living through this, it is, it is, it is tough. It is, it's tough going right now. And so have you thought much about what we should be learning in this moment or any advice for those um, listening? Thanks, Shonda. I, I appreciate the question, though. I, I feel like you would have way more expertise in being in Minneapolis to to, to speak about this. Over here in Seattle, we actually were very inspired by what happened in Minneapolis. And we are making a lot of progress over here in Seattle of defunding the, the police. So people are fired up over here. And there is a strong effort to, to get the, the city council in the city to cut its police budget by half and, and investing that into social services and different ways of ensuring safety uh, in our community. So I, I feel like a part mm -hmm. of that was inspired by what happened in, in Minneapolis and uh, the efforts out there. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel like there, this is the time for us to really challenge many of these systems that we have going, right? Things that we consider mm -hmm. to be immutable and unchangeable. Now is the time to do this because I, I feel like this, this year is a reckoning in many different systems that we have going on with philanthropy, with nonprofit, with everything that we're doing. I wrote a blog post called Have Nonprofit and Philanthropy Become the White Moderates that Dr. King warned us about. Um, and it really struck me because he was talking about how uh, the, the danger to, to, to the black community, the, the, the gravest danger, not the people you know, with, the, with the hoods and then the burning crosses and things, it's the people on the side saying, well, you know, I like what I, I believe in what you're doing, but you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it that way. Or maybe you should sign a petition, uh, start a petition instead of pulling down racist statues. And I kind of feel like our sector has become one giant white moderate in the way that we center mm -hmm. white donors and white uh, foundation and philanthropists and how we go about doing it, mean, how we have become terrified to challenge systems. So we just respond to the symptoms of things that are going on out there. And now is the year for us to actually say, you know what, we can't keep becoming this white moderate sector anymore. Boo, is there anything that we can learn from the conservative movement? There are so many things we can learn from the conservative movement. <laughs> like so many things? I mean, there are so okay, many like things, right? <laughs> well, the way conservatives fund things is, is definitely like, we're over here talking about logic models and waiting nine months to make a decision on, on something. And, and, and we, if we feel really lucky, we get a three-year grant. And we're like, oh, it's not a one-year grant. That's amazing. Conservatives fund for 20 or 30 years at a time to allow people to have the stability 
right, to, to, to do their work. And over here, no, we're just like, we don't trust one another over here. Foundations treat nonprofits the way that society treats poor people, which is like, we want to help you. So here's some money, you know, here's some food stamps, but we want to ensure that you're not buying beer or Cheetos or whatever with this money. So we're going to monitor you. Did you just compare our grants to food stamps? <laughs> I'm just saying that we kind of compare, well, the philosophies are very similar, right? So progressives are like, well, we don't want these freeloaders and these parasite nonprofits depending on us. So it leads to like the sustainability question, which I absolutely hate, right? Which is like, what are you going to do? How are you going to sustain this, this program when, when our funding runs out? All that is saying is, how are you going to stop being a parasite on us? And that is not the right sort of philosophy. Conservatives don't have the philosophy. They're like, oh, you're amazing at doing your work. We're going to keep funding you so you can keep being effective at doing these things. The other thing is conservatives invest in their leaders and trust them mm -hmm. to lead. And progressives, we don't. We are forced to mm -hmm. align with, with funders' priorities. And we, we, we associate leaders with, with organizations. And as soon as they leave, you know, we treat them like batteries to, to, to power these projects and programs. And as soon as batteries run out of juice, they're worthless. And we do this a lot to leaders. We have lots of leaders who leave the sector and are never heard from again. So there's, there's a whole bunch of the stuff that we, and conservatives are not afraid to engage with advocacy and politics, mm. right? I mean, they have all of these, like they have, they've been trying to get more and more conservative judges confirmed. They have confirmed 200 conservative judges while we're trying to fight the pandemic, right? Meanwhile, I believe that one of the biggest keys for us uh, in changing everything is going to be women of color and, and ensuring that they are elected into every single office out there. And whenever I bring this up or whenever other leaders bring this up, you know, the response from the progressive movement is, um, that's interesting, but that seems a little too political. Also, do you have a logic model? Is there like a white paper I can read for the next five years while I consider this? This is what we do in the progressive side. Someone said that progressives bring a spreadsheet to a knife fight. That's, that's, what, we, that's what we do. It's not working. What are your thoughts? I'm feeling like, uh, so I guess I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, I hope that we're not as bad collectively as it sounds. Um, I also think that there is, there is a reckoning that's happening right now. There is a sea change. There is, um, I think a moment for us to collectively decide, do we really want the equitable community that we talk about? Um, I think, you know, I've thought a lot and, you know, I hope I'm cohesive here. And you talked earlier about like, I, I could say a lot about what's happening in Minneapolis and to us uh, community uh, leaders of color. Um, but I guess I would say is that um, there is a moment to um, really center community and your learning and, you know, removing, suspending your judgment so that we can really figure this out. And I think we're either gonna double down on the practices of the past, or we're gonna be open to exploring where we need to go because it's been clear that that's not working to the extent we need it to work. And it is hard work. And there's many of us that are, are sitting inside of foundations, inside of nonprofits that are working to change behaviors, practices, policies that we may know are not effective, are not community focused, but that's hard, lonely work. 
And, you know, in, in your work, Boo, with supporting leaders of color, you know, are there lessons that you have, have learned or are you as concerned as I am about um, people burning out and just leaving the sector? I, I am definitely concerned. I would love your thoughts on what it's like for leaders of color on the philanthropic side. Because what I see on the nonprofit side is that, yes, we, we, we are burning people out. Uh, in the last probably few quarters, in the last year or two, I've just been seeing so many leaders of color, women of color, leaving not just their position, but the entire sector. One move to Brussels <laughs> right before the pandemic. She's like, I, I, can't do, I can't do this anymore. You know, and we, we lose good people and we just, we don't think about this. This week, I wrote a blog post um, called How Philanthropy Has Failed BIPOC Leaders. And this, it's, it's a serious problem, but it's like the boil frog thing, right? When the experiment would have the frog in the boiling water and because the water boils so slowly that the frog just stayed in the water until it died, you know? And this is what has been happening in our sector regarding leaders of color leaving their position and, and the sector is that we just boil frogging, frogging it. We just, because people just trickle out of the sector one at a time, but it's a steady, gradual trickle. And we just believe that other people just come in because we have this unlimited supply of people of color out there who are just going to come in that we're losing good leaders. I mean, honestly, I'm one of the, those leaders because I, I love my organization. Um, I was an executive director for 13 years across two organizations and I love them both. I still do. And it was just, it was just so exhausting trying to do the work and trying to get people to understand and to invest in it. And because we leaders of color, you know, we just constantly have to prove ourselves over and over and over again. I I remember going to a funder talking about a project I was working on after I left my position a few months ago. And I said, I have this, this idea that it's going to transform the sector. And, you know, this is, and here's a concept paper I, I wrote. And, you know, and the funders are like, oh, this is great. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if this aligns with our priorities. Uh, I was just asking for just some startup funding of like ten dollars or $20,000. I can launch this project, you know, um, from this one foundation, collectively like $200,000. But then they're like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure we can invest $20,000 in you for this, this project. And I'm just thinking... I've known you for 15 years. You've invested in all my other projects. You've seen how effective uh, they have been. You know that I'm trustworthy. And yet I have to prove to you again, again, and again. And I have way more privilege and, and a higher profile than most BIPOC leaders in our sector. And if I cannot get mm-hmm. funders to invest in the stuff that I'm doing, then what hope are there for other leaders in the sector who have less visibility than I do? So I am just, I'm begging funders to just trust in BIPOC leaders, invest in our visions, whether they align with your priorities or not. Reconsider whether you should even have a, a leadership in, in setting priorities for the sector in the first place, or whether you should listen to the people most affected by injustice. So that's, I think this is one of the reasons why we've been seeing so many leaders of color leaving. And conservatives, they have what uh, my colleague Angie Kim um, calls soft landing, right? Which is like, if you leave mm-hmm. your, if you leave your position, you know, in the conservative movement, someone's going to help you find a spot on 
Fox News or Dancing with the Stars or get you a book deal, whatever. <laughs> Over here, if you're a progressive leader and you leave, that's it. You know, a funder might say, hey, it's thanks for all you do. <laughs> See you later. Right. That's that's kind of what happens to progressive leaders. And it's it's not good for our sector. I would love to hear your perspective, Shana, because I, I can imagine how difficult it is being a leader of color in the philanthropic side of things. Yeah, I'm not even sure how much I can add, but just to like, you know, virtually high five you on all of that and to acknowledge the emotion that I'm feeling, the frustration um, um, that you're emoting right now. I think, you know, it is it is a time. I mean, we talked about just, you know, living in pandemic, doing work from home, trying to homeschool, trying to grab hold of emotions related to the things that you're seeing every single day that are harming your community. You know, um, you know, beyond homeschooling, I'm I'm trying to support my four sons and grappling with these constant images of black men getting killed and trying to understand how to um, put them in situations that allow for them to um, deal with those emotions and activate. And then I'm at tables where we're arguing over some of the most trivial things. And I'm like, this is this is real. Um, and it's difficult, um, it's impossible, I would say, for me to um, remove the different roles that I play. I bring them all to the table everywhere I go. And um, I often tell people the hardest thing I do in my work is self-editing, because there's so much stuff I just want to be like, stop, quit, <laughs> don't do that again, don't say that again. Um, you're harming community with that point of view. Um, and I think there's a sophistication to managing change, there's a patience to it, but I do think that us leaders of color are bearing the burden um, of that weight of, of um, when we are really, really clear that by waiting, we're losing, um, we're losing black men, we're losing our children, we're losing um, our communities to some extent. And so it, it's just a highly emotional time. I could literally spend all day talking to you and I could bring in, you know, 20 other leaders that would sit around the table and talk about the pain that they're experiencing right now. And, you know, what I've been trying to do is just say, look, I'm not okay. Like check on me. <laughs> like it is tough. Um, and, um, and I think we need to check on each other and assume that we're not okay because it's not okay. The times are just not okay. So, um, but one of the things that you touched on that made me think about, and I had a question, um, if you could talk about toxic self-marginalization, um, so first, if you can just describe what it is and how it really applies to what's happening right now. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I, I toxic self-marginalization is this sort of mostly unconscious way that we kind of, we sabotage one another. We self-marginalize. And a lot of that is because, one, the trauma that we've experienced have, is, you know, it, it's, it builds up within us. And it manifests in things such as us attacking one another. Um, a lot of the, the women of color who've been leaving the sector, who are, who are my friends and colleagues, there are certain patterns with them uh, and, and their experiences, which is that they are leading these highly charged organizations that are doing really important work. And they're trying to do it in a way that is equitable and meaningful. And, but what happens is that oftentimes um, staff become disillusioned with the way that they are making decisions or, or whatever it is, or things are not going the way that they, sh they should. 
or the leader makes a mistake. And what happens is that a, a lot of the, the staff, there's a lot of tensions and dynamics. And we start seeing that the leader is the closest proximate person to power. And it's easier in, in many ways to start to attack this leader than to deal with the trauma we've experienced um, nationally uh, or within our own upbringing, our own backgrounds. So what happens is, uh, you know, this, uh, there comes, a, there, there's a lot of tension that lead leaders to, to, to leave. Um, I was talking to one leader uh, of color, a black woman, who just who said that at, when there was no funding at all, then everything was fine. But as soon as she was able to raise like $5 million for her organization, there were now all these staff who were unhappy because now they're just pointing, pointing out, well, we're not getting paid enough. And she was like, but you were getting paid double what you had been getting paid before. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was talking to her and it was really revealing. She, was just, she said that basically that so many staff are so used to being the underdog, right? being marginalized, that when they were starting to not be as marginalized, then they didn't know, really know what to do with that. And that energy started going into all of these tensions. Mm -hmm. I've experienced that um, and I'm watching other leaders um, and I'm just going to focus on black women, but I've watched them do that where, you know, inside of philanthropy or, or uh, leading an organization, you become um, proxy for power and for the institution. And I, you know, people will kind of not see you and see you representing something that they want to see changed. Um, it's incredibly complicated and uncomfortable and um, destructive, really. Yeah, it is. It's something we need to get a, a grasp on. Yeah. So, Vu, I'm going to go into some questions. I have a few of them here, and we have about 15 minutes. So I'm going to try, I have, I have a few, I'm going to try and sort them. But one of the questions is, how do we know who the people are that are closest to the problem? Uh, it's going to be, it's, it's, I think that is, that's a great question. Um, and it is challenging, but I think in some ways we overthink things, right? As a sector, we love to intellectualize. And we love to think about stuff and overly analyze things. And we're going to talk about who's going to be most affected by injustice. It really depends on the local context, right? A lot, it's going to be a lot of people of color, people with disabilities, women of color. Uh, right now, we're talking about the police. It's going to be black people who are being murdered, um, missing and murdered indigenous women. We have children in cages. So... The, I think we, I don't want us to overthink these issues way too much, right? And we kind of know who are most affected by systemic injustice. Um, it's, it's those, all those mm -hmm. communities and, and others. It's going to be BIPOC communities. Mm -hmm. And then the intersectionality of women and people with disabilities. Sure. Next question. Does no application look like first come, first serve? No. It looks like targeting specifically the communities that are most affected by injustice. And that means defining things. Rainier Valley Corps, my, the previous organization that I, that I work with, in the beginning we had an application because we would send a full-time fellow to organizations led by communities of color, right? And this, is, and, and this was a great, you know, some of them had never had full-time staff before. So 
we had people apply to get a fellow. And so what happens is that immediately I was on a site visit and the dynamics changed com- completely where suddenly I was a funder on a site visit and people dressed up and had snacks lined up and everything. I was like, what the heck? We, we were doing tequila shots just two weeks ago. Why are you <laughs> treating me like this? Um, because the power dynamics and, be, and from that experience, we decided, you know, we, we don't want to recreate these power dynamics. So then what we did was, well, how do we select who sent, we sent our fellows to, right? Because we only have 10 fellows and there's like dozens of organizations who want them. So what we did was, well, we set these parameters. You have to be led by and serving community color. That means 75% of your staff, 75% of your board, your board chair, and your board, um, your ED or CEO have to be people of color, right? You have to have, be within a certain geographic area and you're, you have to be less than 500,000 or a million in budget size. Well, when we did, when we had set those parameters, then only a few organizations could qualify and when we were transparent about those parameters, then people would not complain because they're like, okay, I understand. I don't necessarily agree with you because my organization is over a million, but we still need a fellow, but at least I understand what your parameters are. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to talk about, well, without the application, we will go, well, we're going to focus on the black community. And now we have to ensure that, mm-hmm. you know, this is the definition of what a black community led organization is. It is what, whatever, 75% of your board and staff, the CEO needs to be black and all 75% of the people that you serve need to be black. And then only those organizations can get this funding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, we know generally what it, what it looks like. So the smaller organizations, um, the ones closer to the ground, the ones under a million, under 2 million, you're going to have more folks of color leading those organizations. As you go up in budget size, it becomes more and more challenging uh, to find um, organizations that meet the demographics that you just described. Um, and um, I think that it's a continued challenge when you look at representation of leadership. And so if someone was not interested in funding a scrappy organization and it was white-led, do you have um, any advice to them on what they should be looking for? Um, sorry, Shonda, what was the... What was that question again? Someone who was just that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of organizations that are not led by folks of color, especially as they are larger in budget size. So if an organization is led by a white person, shared by a white chair, and they are saying they're doing equity and justice work, do you have any insight on or advice on what someone might be looking for if they're wanting to make an investment there? Uh, Yeah, I... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I feel like there are lots of organizations led by white folks who are doing amazing work. We're, I don't want to discount them, right? Um, because okay. we're, we're all needed. Mm-hmm. And I, I, philanthropy needs to increase its payout rate. There's 1.7 trillion or so sitting in philanthropic endowments and donor advice funds right now. And only 5% is going out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying remove money from white-led organizations and giving it to POC-led organizations. I'm saying we need to increase how much is out there and that increase in funding needs to go to BIPOC led organizations. Uh, so organization, but we also have to be very thoughtful uh, and about what we're willing to give up if we want to, to create equity in our communities. So that means that sometimes organizations have to be okay with not getting funding. One thing that was really inspiring over here in Seattle is we had a foundation that gave out $50,000 grants just unsolicited during the pandemic to a bunch of organizations. 
They just call them and say, hey, you've never heard of us. <laughs> Maybe you've never applied to us. Here's $50,000 because you know, you're doing good work. And they were ensuring that that money is going to BIPOC-led organizations. And the great thing, even more inspiring, is that some of those organizations said, hey, we're actually doing okay. You know, so why can you, would you mind giving this money to another organization that is not doing so well? So would you, and it was really inspiring to see that. And I think this is what we have to start doing for one another is not just hoard as much money as possible, but be thoughtful about who is getting the funding. And maybe sometimes we don't get the funding. So it does take a lot of it, like, uh, you know, white allies have to understand and have to examine like, okay, am I right for this role? Or is my organization right to take this money in the first place? And yes, there are certain, definitely certain instances where you do need, like there's lots of geographic areas where it is predominantly white community members. And so the mm -hmm. organizations are going to be white led and that's okay. We have to invest in those organizations too. But if you are a white led organization in an area that's predominantly people of color, that you have to assess whether, you know, you are taking up space and funding that should be going to communities of color. Good response. Um, speaking of, of hoarding dollars, um, people have lots to say about donor advised funds um, and um, how do we release them? And there's questions around um, how should we, um, how should nonprofits be advocating um, for the redistribution of those dollars? Um, that's a hard question. I don't know if you have any response to it. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely need more regulation on donor advice funds. <laughs> they are out of control right now. Um, and we can disagree, Sean, <laughs> right? Because in a way- Did you see I my think, little uncomfortable shift? <laughs> I just like shifted like, ah, yeah. Well, I, I would love to get your perspective on this. I, I feel like there is no regulation almost on donor advice funds. They can just give out, there's, there's no law that says you have to give out 5% like there are with foundation, 5% is, is you know, very low. That needs to be increased to 10% at least. But donor advice funds, there's well, just- What's the minimum? No. The minimum yeah. is 5%. If you stay with the minimum, then that's the decision you're actively making. You can do more than 5% if you so choose, right? Exactly. You know, I don't, I don't know what to say about donor advised funds other than, um, you know, I tell people when they say that, it would be like me going to Wells Fargo and asking for, um, a list of their uh, folks that have accounts there so that they can be solicited. And so there's, there's uh, one side of me says, like, I have a donor advised fund, you know, it's not millions of dollars in the fund. I have a fund and I would like my dollars to be able to be um, there for my kids so that they can continue to be active in community as investors in great ideas. So if, if that's important to me, then I need to build, build dollars in that fund so that they can have them to distribute. So there's one side of me that says, yes, more money. Like for sure, there are more dollars from donor advised funds that should be going out in community. And we've seen that happen in trend with the pandemic. Um, and we've seen how it has provided a safety net in some ways to organizations or at least temporarily allow them to survive through those those immediate days um but i think it's an interesting thing and and um regardless of the regulation i feel that 
um, you know, at the Minneapolis Foundation and anywhere that has donor advised funds, you have an opportunity to shape how you want those donor advised funds to be distributed in your organization. And I think it comes up to the conversation that we had in the beginning around donor centrism um, and community centric ideas. And I think that if you're looking at community and what community needs, then it invites the conversation around how should we be thinking about the distribution of our resources, including donor advised funds. Yeah, so absolutely. That's, that's I, what I got for that one. Well, I, I think we should have a part two of this conversation. Well, we can, well, we can discuss I, We absolutely that. need a part two because I got about 20 more questions that I had for you. And um, these questions are coming in. So we got about six minutes. Um, and can you share what has been the most successful transformations you supported in the nonprofit sector? And what do you attribute its success to? Uh, the most successful transformation in the nonprofit sector? That oh, boy. A question. <laughs> That's very challenging. I mean, okay. I, there's projects I, I have worked on, right? Um, I, uh, I might need some more time to think about this. I do feel like the community-centric okay. well, <laughs> fundraising work, I really, and like I, I see the work of leaders like Edgar Villanueva, and Anand Giridharadas and, and others really shifting the conversation, mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. know. So that, that's been yeah. really helpful. Like the decolonizing yeah. wealth work has been really helpful to, to really think decolonizing about. Decolonizing wealth and then Anand's book, um, Winners Take All, that's also a really good, good book that I invite everyone uh, to read. Uh, Boo, can you share some action or behaviors that um, philanthropic institution or program officers do that demonstrate um, trust and partnership with the organizations that they are working with? Do you have like a little checklist of things that you can just say, this is what trust looks like, trust-based philanthropy looks like, these three things? <laughs> well, there's an entire trust-based philanthropy movement with uh, a set of principles and practices that I, I hope everyone would check out. But a lot of it is, you know, ensuring that you, you, you trust people and you streamline processes and you give multi-year general operating funds because when you give restricted funding, it just says, I don't trust you with this money that I'm giving you. You know, when you give multi-year unrestricted fund, you're saying, I trust you. I mean, that's an example. Or if one example of, of uh, a trust-based practice was when, when, a, when a funder, the Robert Sterling Clark Foundation called me up and said, Vu, I want to invest in your work at RVC. And I know you're very busy, so can you just find me a grant application that you wrote for someone else and just forward it to me? Don't worry about changing the name of that foundation or whatever. We don't care. Just forward it to me. And I remember that conversation with Phil Lee of Robert Sterling Clark. because it, And I, I hung up the phone, and in my car, on the phone, I just found the grant that I spent 30 hours writing, and I just forwarded it to him. So this grant application literally took all of two minutes to do. Right, because it's the exact same information. Why do we need to like bespoke it for other people when it's the same information for every single funder? But you know, it's, we have to like translate it from 500 characters to one page. Like, why? We're wasting so much time doing that. That's not trust-based at all. That is just like conforming to the whims of foundations and funders to present this exact same information that we that that we have. So mm -hmm. those, yeah. Okay, last question, and then we'll wrap, is um, any advice on how to convince foundations to fund long-term civic engagement? 
Oh, I don't know, Shonda. This is really critical. I feel like this, the next several months is vital. And if we, if we don't learn anything, if we still haven't learned that we just cannot keep addressing the symptoms of the problem. We can't just keep like trying to put out the fire instead of like stopping people from setting fires in the first place. You know, there's like all these fires going out there and people are like, let's do a summit on burn treatments. You know, <laughs> that's what our sector is, is like. And when I'm like, no, civic engagement and we have to invest in people. We have to invest in women of color being in, in office. And I think the only way is all of us will have to be more vocal. We have to be more vocal. We got to push and we got to be willing in some ways to sacrifice our jobs, our reputation. If we really believe in this, we have to examine our own personal conflicts of interest, right? Because if all of us, we still have our mortgages to pay. We, we have our families to feed. So we don't want to rock the boat too much, but we have to acknowledge that by not wanting to rock the boat because we are conflicted, then we are perpetuating the injustices that we are trying to solve. And at least we should be honest with ourselves so we can start to come up with some solutions because otherwise mm -hmm. we won't be able to. Yeah, and I think for those of us that are oriented to rocking the boat and to disrupting systems, it's easier to do that when you're doing that in partnership with a lot of other people that are also trying to disrupt the same system with a degree of boldness and intentionality. And, um, you know, if I had to wrap what you just said, it's that investments and in programs are really important, but investment in systems change and leadership is just as essential, if not more important than those programmatic investments. Our sector, I've, I've kind of identified five key things that our entire sector needs to rally around. If we want change, if we're not just going to address the symptoms of these broken systems. Well, like, One is we got to invest in women of color in, in, in to, into office. We've got to change the tax codes so rich people pay more their fair share of taxes, right? We got to have, ensure that there's no more voter suppression. We've got to, so that people are voting, people from marginalized communities are voting. We've got to remove the, the influence of corporations on politics. And we have to change the public narratives so that it's aligned with science and facts and not fear and hatred. And if we can focus on those four, five key things I think every single system would be changed, but we're not willing to do that because they're political or, or whatever. And this is how, if we don't understand that this year, then we are just screwed for, for the next several decades. Got it. So we have to wrap. We were going to get to some silver linings. I'm sure there are some out there. We'll get to them in part two of, of our conversation. And um, I think that um, you know, some of the silver linings I see is that there's an opportunity for us right now in this moment to do something different. And um, I think in order to do something different, you have to believe something different is possible. And so um, I think that there are um, plenty of things that are happening right now that are, are, are moving us in the right direction. And hopefully we can sustain that, that we can continue to question our practices, that we can continue to support leaders of color, and that we can work to continue to get more proximate to the issues that we're trying to address um, collectively. Boo, thank you. Boule, everyone, a virtual hand clap to Boule. I invite you all to um, check out the podcast, Conversations with Shonda um, at the Minneapolis Foundation, where we are seeking to have conversations that are uncomfortable and grittier and necessary 
Um, and then uh, to all of you listening, thank you for taking time uh, to spend with us. Um, we will send out a survey later today um, that we hope that you will fill out so that we can continue to build um, on, on this effort at the Minneapolis Foundation. So thank you. I hope you all enjoy your day and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Boo, thank you and I will talk with you soon. Thank you so much, Chanda. Thank you, everyone. That's Boole and Shonda Smith-Baker. But it's not over yet. Stay tuned for a part two. Sign up to receive updates at conversationswithshonda.org and follow Vule on Twitter at NonprofitAF and Shonda at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Potkinitz from the Minneapolis Foundation wishing you all the best and thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.